0: I love the name. It's yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a curate's egg. I think like those who get it are like, yeah, cool, <laughs> and and a whole swathes of other people are just like, I don't know how to pronounce that. That's a terrible <laughs> name. So, uh, don't you get any uh, crit- crit- <coughs> criticism for bad taste? Um, no. Fortunately, we haven't. But may- maybe we need to get to that stage. I think that's maybe the next yeah, step yeah. for the podcast to piss people off. Um, I do have yeah, we do have some criticisms of like the logo that they're like people are sick of Berlusconi staring them in the face, but. You know, I think we have to. But I think,
1: I think con- the, fact, the fact, that every few weeks it seems to be like, oh, I feel everything feels like 1990s Italy seems to be proving a point. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That guy
0: won't go away, but you know, now we've got our own here. <clears throat> right. That's exactly it. Um, it, it. 90s Italy foretells all our futures. Hi there, this is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Welcome to new listeners who joined us in the past month or so. Just going to take a quick moment to explain what we're all about, so bear with us if you're a regular listener. I'm Alex Hokely and I'm the anchor and one of the four co-producers. I'm based in Sao Paulo, Brazil, as is Ben Fogel, another of the producers. The other two, George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe, are in the UK. What we do here is explore the contours of what we call the end of the end of history. This weird moment where politics seems to have come back after decades of stultifying consensus politics, but in which it takes strange new forms. Our episodes alternate between examining big ideas, the concrete national politics of different societies, so see our recent episodes on Nigeria or a little while back on the Philippines, and cultural discussions such as the Oscars and cancel culture. If you like what we're doing, consider chipping in a few currency units to our Patreon at patreon.com bungacast We also accept that very modern form of currency, reviews and word of mouth, so please do give us some gold stars and tell your friends. Now speaking of currency units, the anglophone left has moved from the margins to the cusp of power in the US and in the UK. Now that relative success, I say relative at least in comparison to the past decades, is partly due to the appeal of policies such as Green New Deal or a Guaranteed Jobs Act. See, for example, our recent episode with James Medway, the former advisor to the UK's shadow chancellor. For decades, the right dismissed any attempt to break with neoliberalism or pursue social democratic policies as fiscally irresponsible. The usual response to the right is, how can you pay for these things? What we're going to discuss today is modern monetary theory. Its adherents, which include people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, claim that they found the answer to the question of restoring growth and paying for the left's big policy proposals, an answer that seems to break with neoliberal dogma. However, there are a lot of skeptics of this idea. And that includes today's guest, the author, journalist, and economist Doug Henwood, the author of a recent polemic against modern monetary theory, or MMT, in the latest edition of Jacobin. The link is in the show notes, along with other readings. So this week we delve into the case against MMT, and why the left should be wary of embracing its proposals. Lest you think we at AlphaBungaBunga are anti-MMT and that's a policy position of ours or anything like that, This is actually the first part of a two-part series on MMT. The next one will see us talk to an MMT proponent to hear out the case in favor of it, and then we will discuss and unpick all the tensions and contradictions in each position at the end of it as we tend to do. All right, here is myself and Ben Fogel talking to Doug Henwood. All right, hi Doug. Welcome again. We are coming to you from the failed fascist state of Brazil, uh, where things are getting seriously <laughs> weird. I say failed fascist state. It's not a failed state which is fascist. It's just failing to become a fascist state, uh, and is actually being held down by the usual immobilism of Brazil. So it's pretty weird. But let's talk about the United States rather than Brazil, uh, Doug. Uh, amidst the collapse of, of Russia Gate, uh, which I think we're all very happy to see, and the beginning of the eternal uh campaign season how are you feeling about bernie to get us started
2: well you know i like bernie a lot um he's had uh, um i like him what he proposes to do but also his effect on american politics has been almost nothing but good uh he's uh, uh inspired a whole um cohort of young people to uh, become socialists or at least profess to be uh, a whole bunch of candidates inspired by him have uh, been running for office and actually won in many cases um and you know he revealed um, this taste for uh, a radical politics, um, whatever precisely that means in practice, but uh, at least uh, in name, uh, among a very sizable portion of the population of the age of 40. So it's um, remarkable this guy is almost twice that age, um, he is uh, inspiring all these young people to uh, uh, um, embrace a politics uh, that hasn't been seen in this country f- at least since the 60s or maybe the 30s. Um, so it's uh, nothing but good. And, you know, what he proposes to do is... is has a pretty simple agenda, but uh, um, uh, Medicare for all would be a wonderful thing. Uh, college tuition, uh, free college tuition, uh, rudiments of a more civilized welfare state. Um, you know, he's sort of not so great on foreign policy, although he's been getting better. Uh, but um, you know, these would be uh, by the standards of American politics, which you know, which are pretty low standards. Um, it's such a breath of fresh air and such an inspiration. So. Um, I just worry that a lot of people are like hoping that the magic he performed the first time around can be repeated easily the second time around um and uh, maybe not no not it's it's a bit of old news now and it's, everybody's trying to imitate his agenda while watering it down so it's not going to be a uh the same as it was in 2016 when he was the only person challenging uh the discredited embodiment of the status quo um you know he's got what there must be 27 or 43 or I don't know how many people are running for the Democratic nomination for president now, but, uh, it's, it's a bizarre and crowded field. Is
1: Betts already a person though?
2: Uh, that's, uh, uh, doubtful. And, uh, but judge, judge too, uh, whatever's, uh, how do you pronounce that? It's, he seems like kind of a bot himself. Um, I was just reading his, uh, his college essay, uh, on the Dave Matthews band after nine eleven. 11, that was just quite a, quite a piece of work. And I know he's only 19, but still there's no excuse for that. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: I have to apologize on behalf of South Africa for Dave Matthews. He went to the same school as my father, actually.
0: Oh, he's South African? Indeed. (laughs) Ben's constantly surprising me with people who happen to to turn out to be South African. I'm like, ah, that's a different angle to them I hadn't seen, but there you go. Oh, uh,
2: yeah, my condolences. Um, But, you know, he came out of Charlottesville uh, uh, in the U.S., and uh, I went to graduate school at the University of Virginia, so I I always feel tainted somehow by that association myself. Well,
1: speaking of that, uh, Doug, we've been big fans of your show for quite some time, and we think you're one of the best uh, interviewers out there. But but from what I understand, your formation was actually in English literature. How does a literary type uh, make the transition to commenting about the world of high finance?
2: (laughs) Well, I was, um, when I was in college, I was divided between being an economics major and an English major. And uh, when I first got to college, I had this uh, brief uh, um, um, period of mental illness, I would think, uh, and I became a right-winger, a libertarian of the Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek uh, sort. And uh, while I was uh, in the grips of that, I was going to be um, uh, an, an economics major. Um, Yale at the time was a real hotbed of Keynesianism, so I felt like it was really going against the grain by being uh, a frank reactionary. Uh, there weren't very many of us in the early 70s. It was a very lonely thing to do. Uh, and uh, But then I just got disillusioned with the right and uh, threw uh, the economics over it. I thought I'd be a uh, romantic and impractical and be an English major. And I just loved romantic poetry and critical theory, and uh, then I went to graduate school and, and studied those things too. Um, I was going to write dissertation on Narcissism in American Poetry, Emerson, Whitman, and Stevens. Uh, and I was going to tie that uh, to the evolution of the political economy. I, I stayed interested in economics, even though I didn't major in it and didn't pursue any, any more study of it. Uh, and I started reading up on, uh, I read you know, uh, Baron and Sweezy's Monopoly Capital and you know, started reading all this Marxist uh, economics. And this is much more interesting than um, um, the uh, the evolution of American poetry. So I just got more and more into that and then started writing about it. Uh, uh, back in 1986, I launched uh, my newsletter, uh, the Left Business Observer, and uh, really just, uh, as the development economists say, learned by doing. Um, but I I, no, I, did, I did do some undergraduate economics, but you know, only five or six semesters worth of it. So it was all mostly self-taught.
0: Well, I'm sure all our listeners will be avid readers and familiar with uh, all your work but we maybe should actually talk about maybe the narcissism of the American economy. I don't know if we can put that (laughs) heading to it, but um, I mean, everything in the UK in the U S economy seems to be discussed in reference to internal U S elections. And both that includes both inside the U S and outside. Um, So maybe we should actually talk about the economy itself. Obviously the top line figures look okay. And the U S can still pretend to call itself a job creation machine, but of course, we know that the unemployment figures disguise quite a lot. So, beyond the media discussion of the economy, what state is the U.S. economy actually in? And I guess if we have to ask the question, you know, how does this play in the in the ne- in the elections?
2: Well, by conventional measures, uh, given uh, the, the numbers on income growth and unemployment, uh, Trump should be a shoe in for re-election. Although, you know, mm. we're probably a while away from the, the actual election, so anything could happen over the next year. But American elections are actually very, very predictable. Um, you can predict them with a high degree of accuracy with just two variables uh, in the spring uh, before the election. That is the president's approval rating and uh, the uh, the, uh, the growth in, in real uh, per capita income. Uh, and the growth in real per capita income, while not uh, gangbusters, is, is looking pretty good, but the president's approval rating is very low. So uh, that just by those conventional measures, Trump is not a shoe in. Uh, but you know, it's a very weird economy we're living in now. Uh, nothing seems to uh, behave be behaving uh, as the textbooks uh, would would suggest. Uh, you should see with the unemployment rate now uh, just below four percent, we should be seeing wage growth uh, and signs of increasing worker militants. We are seeing some signs of increasing worker militants. Uh, but you know this so far is mostly in the public sector, uh, teachers. Uh, we've seen a few private sector strikes, but uh, labor is still uh, well, a little livelier than it was a couple of years ago, so not not showing uh, any great signs of strength. Uh, The fact that wages are not rising very rapidly is is strange. Um, And um, there's just uh, not a whole lot of satisfaction. People don't, I mean, the the popular mood is not that of a prosperous country. Uh, And we've been seeing this, you know, incredible froth in the financial markets for several years now, just, uh, just booming markets, um, bond market's been stumbling a bit, but the stock market has been doing mostly well for almost 10 years. Uh, and usually when that happens, uh, there's a general um, you know, kind of outbreak of euphoria and good feeling. Uh, when it happened in the late 90s, uh, uh, it was uh, you could see it in, in pop music. You could see it in the, the broad culture that there's just this... Um, euphoria around even because the money was being spread around more evenly um, everyone in in across uh, the income distribution the wage distribution was seeing real wage increases for the last few years of the 90s but I guess nowadays uh, you, get this, like now. you
0: get this endless uh, redefinition of expectations downwards so you know what good looks like is not exactly what good looked like in the 90s or for that matter the 70s or before right
2: yeah um, but yeah I think people have just come to expect nothing um, and very uh, right, yeah especially for, for younger people. I mean, I was just looking at some of the, 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 the numbers for younger people. Uh, and it's not as dire it was a, as a few years ago. Uh, but, uh, the unemployment rate, uh, for younger people is higher now than it was in the late nineties, even though the broader unemployment rate is, uh, uh, is, is very low. Um, you know, and a lot of people are up to their ears in debt. Um, so uh, you know, while things are certainly better than they were uh, in 2008 or 2010, uh, this is you know not happy days here here again time.
0: So let's get down to uh, the brass tacks of what we really want to get into here, um, which is the question of
1: MMT, Ben. So for those who don't know, MMT is modern monetary theory, and is seemingly all the rage from Brazil to the United States to its real homeland, in my opinion, Australia, even uh politicians like AOC have been bringing it up in terms of the the big debates of the time a green New deal uh what does democratic socialism look like so Doug how did you come to write this article well I have been I, I first
2: I ever heard of it was I met Stephanie Kelton who was one of the uh the originators of the theory, a paper she wrote in 1998 is considered one of the the founding documents of the school. Uh, I met her when she was in graduate school at the New School here in New York uh, at a party. And uh, she said she was working on showing that the government didn't need to tax or borrow to spend. And I said, wait, really? Are you serious? And uh, she said, yeah. And I thought, you know, I was in the presence of a lunatic and uh, went and got another drink. Um, Little did I know that 20 years later, you know, this thing would be all the rage. Uh, and a few years ago, I started hearing more and more about it. Uh, friends of mine, like uh, well, one friend of mine who was in a Marxist feminist reading group in Brooklyn said everybody was talking about it there. Uh, a lot of the DSA people were talking about it. Um, it was uh, just spreading around on on the left, more the softer left, not, you know, the real uh, you're not you're not going to find uh, Trotskyist groups talking about it, but you know I think a lot of people on, on the softer social democratic left uh, and liberals found this a very engaging doctrine because the you know the, the question always is when you propose something ambitious, some something like Medicare for all or a Green New Deal, how are you going to pay for it? Which is a legitimate question, uh, although it's often used uh, cynically to shut things down. But you know how how you're going to pay for something is an important question. Uh, but the, um, the temptation of modern monetary theory is uh, to say, well, you know, I don't really have to pay for things. Uh, the government can just uh, write uh, checks, print money. Uh, the, the, the metaphor they always use is, is keystrokes, that uh, money is just created by the government out of thin air by uh, uh, tapping on a computer. Keyboard. Right, and, and, you're quite, uh, uh, and
0: you're quite sarcastic about this in your article constantly, very often referring to keystrokes as just magicking progress out of thin air which I think is a, you know.
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, the, the theory that, the, the, well, let me say this. It's kind of hard to talk about modern monetary theory in, in any rigorous way because they're so slippery about defining it. So if you look at some of the cornerstone doctrines uh, that you don't need to tax or borrow uh, to spend – uh, that's in the, in, Under American law, that's just not true. The government cannot spend money that it hasn't either gotten through borrowing or taxation. The, gov- the Treasury cannot borrow directly from the Federal Reserve, which is what they, in their fantasy world, they seem to think you can do. They always say things like, oh, we're just describing the world as it is, not as we want it to be, but in fact, it's not. Um, so, but I think they would like the law to be changed so that the, the treasury could just
0: borrow from the central bank and spend money uh, out of thin air. But it, it does start. It does start from the central proposition, right? That what creates money is not the central bank, but actually private banks uh, and respond responding to demand for credit, right? And I guess that's what. That's what.
2: No, no, no. That they, they this um, MMT came out of that school of thought. That's endogenous money theory, which is kind of a branch of, of post Keynesian economics. Um, but. Um, well, and that held, you know, under like classic monetarist doctrine, Milton Friedman at all, uh, the central bank creates money and then it spreads through the private economy and then you have uh, the risk uh, that, uh, as they say, too much money chasing too few goods, you get inflation. And uh, that's the Milton Friedman didn't like that. Uh, but they, uh, then uh, endogenous money theory, uh, which is, uh, I found rather persuasive and has a lot in common with Marx's theories of money, By that, uh, for that matter, uh, holds that uh, money is created when private banks uh, create credit, lend money to private actors, businesses or, or consumers, which then they scramble to fund somehow, uh, that they make a loan first without having, necessarily having the money on hand. And then usually the central bank will accommodate that, providing the money to, to cover these loans unless they're getting in a, into a tightening mode and they won't do that. Um, but uh, in modern monetary theory, the origin of money is when the government spends money. Uh, so just to come, so in, just the- to come
1: in here, uh, um, I'm just going to quote from your article about the relation of government to the market. Uh, and this is from someone else speaking. Uh, government is a god. Giving economic life through spending. Until it spends, we have no money. Taxes and borrowing are merely means to manage the levels of reserves in the banking system. This seems like a compelling break with sort of neoliberalism and the haunting spectre of inflation.
2: Yeah, well then, see, this is what I was saying earlier, they're very slippery. So if you, start, if you say, well, you know, if the government just spends without limit, uh, that will create inflation. Uh, and they say, oh, no, 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 we don't believe in doing that. Uh, we don't believe in taxing um, uh, to raise revenue, as most people think of taxation. Uh, we believe in taxing to control inflation. So we re- remove spending power from the economy uh, and that will uh, soften uh, the uh, inflationary impact of all that spending. Uh, and uh, then um, we will just go happily onwards uh, by having drained liquidity from the system, of re- reserves from the banking system. Uh, an awful lot of MNT is just this boring accounting around uh, bank reserves, which is just like the dullest thing on earth, but um, they're very technocratic about that sort of thing. Uh, and um, so then you know they drain money out of the system, and then uh, we don't have to worry about inflation anymore. Um, so then you ask them, at what point does that happen? Mm, they're very vague about that. Um, they. Uh, you know, what are the limits on spending? Well, we don't know. We'll just just spend until something happens. I mean, they sound like uh, the old Mark Zuckerberg, you know, push it till it breaks kind of uh, view of, of things. Um, but again, they're, they're really very vague uh, about uh, precisely uh, how loose uh, they think the,
1: spend, the constraints on spending can be. In terms of interest rates, what is, I mean, I, I when I see MMT stuff, they propose basically a 0% interest rate. I mean, what is the, exactly their policy in terms of interest rates?
2: That's what they say, uh, at least uh, uh, from the central bank policy rate, but here in the United States, it's the federal funds rate. Um, Yeah, and uh, they think that uh, interest rates can be... um, Zero forever, basically, uh, which, as far as I can tell, is incompatible with the capitalist system. Although they profess not to be um, opponents of the capitalist system, um, Randy Ray, one of their gurus, has said that MMT is compatible with any kind of economics you can imagine, from you know social democratic to Austrian libertarian. Um, so, um, uh, the, but they do believe that somehow the, uh, the, the the central bank can keep rate interest rates at zero forever. That means. Uh, I, I it just it's a mystery to me how um things would work under that kind of arrangement who would lend money to whom um under those cir- circumstances that's just beyond me uh it's uh, but you know they they say these things and uh uh people say really and you know they say yeah um but i don't know it's 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 it's, it's, it's
0: uh it's it seems uh, fanciful and fictitious to me So in your article, I mean, you're very clear about how unconvincing a lot of MMT uh, proponents actually seem, uh, how flaky a lot of their answers are when they pushed and so on. I think we can take that all on board and say, okay, fine. But if we actually get down to the economics of the matter. I mean, do you find that there's any validity to their proposals? In your article, you seem to hint that, well, you know, if they're just saying that we don't need to be so worried about the deficit and we can print a little bit of money, uh, you know, the state can lead investment a little bit more. That's kind of all right. I mean, do you go along with that? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's hard to say, tell sometimes where they're just sort of like
2: somewhat uh, kinky Keynesians uh, um, (laughs) or... They actually believe that the government can spend without limit. It's really hard to tell. So sometimes they just say, you know, it's, sometimes it's just, well, in a recession, the government can spend money uh, and uh, get us out of the recession, or the government can borrow and make long-term investments. We needn't worry so much about the deficit within reason. Um, th- those are all fairly reasonable. I mean, you could argue about you know, the levels uh, and the long-term impact, or you could argue about whether the budget should be balanced over the long-term. These are all, you know, open questions, but you know, th- these are not unreasonable things. Uh, but uh, it's really hard to tell how far they want to push it, because um, sometimes they just sound like regular old Keynesians uh, with with perhaps a kink, but uh, at other times, you know, they just uh, they're off in their own world. I, I think, um, as, as Kelton said once, uh, MMT is a brand, uh, and I think a lot of it is a brand uh, rather than you know some sort of um, intellectually rigorous uh, school of mm-hmm. thought
1: let 's talk about the brand then, so who are the main uh, brand leaders, the influencers in MMT? What sort of influence do they hold? Uh, can you sort of give us like a I guess a very brief genealogy of uh, MMT for our listeners who are probably mostly unfamiliar with it, and I believe in the article at least you hint to even some crossovers with the genealogy of neoliberalism in terms of its history well the um- the, the founding documents of the school
2: are, as I mentioned, Stephanie Kelton's paper earlier from 1998, uh, and Randy Ray, uh, who uh, uh, had a book, Modern Monetary Theory, first edition, came out in ninety eight. Uh, uh, the, um, the kind of um, that Vatican of, of MMT thinking is the University of Missouri in Kansas City. Um, several of the people uh, either were there or passed through there. Uh, Ray was there for a long time. Uh, Kelton was there. Uh, Paulina Cherneva, who is a younger uh, a person who works uh, heavily on the Job Guarantee, which is uh, part of MMT, uh, was there. Uh, and then also the Levy Institute at Bard College is another outpost of theirs. Uh, it You know, at first I thought it was... Um, very American doctrine. It seems to me very dependent upon uh, the imperial privilege the United States has by issuing the world's currency, the dollar. Uh, We don't have to worry about the foreign exchange value of our currency at all. Uh, We've been able to borrow without limit uh, as we like uh, for for as long as anyone can remember. Um, But apparently, it's uh, actually, there are are places around the world where it's it's, it's picking up. I just learned from uh, you that um, it's big in Brazil. And I really don't understand uh, how precisely that would work given that uh, the Brazilian currency is not uh, widely accepted internationally. Uh, Brazilian uh, government bonds are not as good as U.S. Treasury bonds. Um, So I really don't know how um, they, they
0: propose to get away with it. So actually, now that you mention it, we we're going to discuss this in a little bit, but might as well jump into it right here. I mean, obviously, inflation is the big concern. And in uh, an emerging market like Brazil, let alone in lesser developed markets, that seems to be a real problem. How open are tiers about the fact that this really only applies to certain developed economies, uh, especially to the US? You know, the question of monetary sovereignty, okay, that's clear if you're the US and some other places. You mentioned Canada, Japan, Britain. Uh, but, you know, if you're Brazil, that's a lot less straightforward.
1: Um, I just wanted to come in here quickly. Uh, so um, I think MMT is actually saying, in terms of what I've seen in places like Brazil and South Africa, that it's completely applicable to Brazil and South Africa, and this is a great idea to get the economies growing and develop nat- in developing nations too.
2: Yeah, I, I really don't understand the logic of that at all. Um, so uh, there's a uh, there's. Quite an amazing exchange, which I wrote about in the the article, um, uh, between uh, um, Tom Paley, who is a, uh, a post-Keynesian economist uh, based in Washington, uh, and uh, Warren Mosler, uh, who is an interesting figure at MMT Land. Uh, Warren Mosler runs a hedge fund, lives in the U.S. Virgin Islands because it's a tax shelter with nice weather. Uh, he, uh, has subsidi- he writes his own books, um, r- writes his own blog. Um, uh, but he also writes checks to support MMT research. He's given, I think, something in the order of $10 million to the UMKC people. Uh, he subsidized uh, their journals. He subsidizes their conferences. Uh, and um, it's very interesting that they have this guy who lives in a tax shelter, uh, and uh, he pays uh, them money to write about how the government really doesn't need to tax. It's, it's a curious uh, uh, um, co- coincidence of, of uh, um, personal want and uh, intellectual doctrine. Uh, But um, uh, there was an exchange between uh, Mosler and Tom Pele at a conference in South Africa. Uh, And Pele is, I think, originally from uh, uh, Zimbabwe uh, and uh, has followed the economy of Southern Africa pretty closely ever since. And he said uh, uh, that uh, Mosler was talking about the job guarantee, uh, which is, I guess we'll talk about that in a bit. But the idea that the, the the central government will guarantee anyone who wants to work a job. Uh, And uh, the rate of pay is is controversial. Some MMTers propose a pretty high rate of pay. Mosler himself being a hedge fund guy proposes a pretty low rate of pay. But, you know, the principle is that uh, the government would provide the unemployed with a job uh, and uh, presumably one paying better than, you know, Somewhere above poverty wages, so there's this exchange between Mosler and Paley, and Paley said, "Well, you know, if we did that in South Africa, if you gave all this money to the poor people, they would want electricity and food and things that are beyond the capacity, the current capacity of the South African economy to produce. So you would have very serious inflation problems just because." The, uh, the the productive capacity of the South African economy couldn't really handle all this new demand if we gave it and, and uh, that, the, uh, gave uh, poor people that kind of money. Uh, Mosler uh, defended himself by saying, "Well, he didn't want to give them that much money, so it wouldn't make that big a difference. So, you know, what what is the point of the job guarantee?" But then Randy Ray took this uh, uh, exchange and uh, caricatured it in a paper responding to a, a, a critique that Paley wrote of MMT, saying that. Uh, uh that that Paley doesn't want poor people to be able to eat um which is not the point he was trying to make he's trying to like you say that you have to really take seriously the productive constraints for a, a a poor country uh like South Africa you know Brazil of course less poor but it does have productive constraints compared to a, a country like the United States um so uh, you know I don't understand how uh in the absence of a really um, you know advanced uh high-tech, Production sector, you could uh, uh, just spend money with printing presses and hope to develop the economy that way. They're very scornful of foreign borrowing, for example, um, for, for uh, um, developing countries. Uh,
0: so uh, yeah, and you're and you're very clear about the difficulties of actually acquiring capital goods. You know, without borrowing, you know, you need to import. How do you put it? Like locomotives and you know nuclear power plants and whatever. Uh, you can't just magic that out of thin air.
2: Yeah, and, and, and to do that, you need dollars and euros and yen. Uh, you don't because that's the the, the the companies that make those things are based in, in the first world countries. Then they want hard money to, to pay for the goods, and it's very hard. You know, you can't. Ex- how do you pronounce the Brazilian currency, real or real? Oh yeah, yeah. My Portuguese is terrible.
0: No, no, no it's good. It's good. <laughs> uh,
2: you you can't pay for you know like. German machine tools with rails. They just, the Germans want euros for that. Uh, Same thing, you know, South African rand. Uh, You need to borrow in those currencies if you want to buy advanced uh, productive goods. Now, you could probably, you know, push the boundaries a little bit by printing money and maybe, you know, like give poor people a little extra. But then if you start creating inflation, uh, you're going to um, create a whole lot of political tensions as well between middle-income people who see these poor folks getting money and the price of their uh, their goods rising. Uh, th- and so uh, there, there's going to be a lot of internal uh, struggle over um, this, this kind of funny money finance. Uh, but uh, they really don't want to talk about, these kinds of productive constraints in any, in, in, in any serious way. And you know, in the United States, if we used um, uh, uh, printed money, if we just like created money out of thin air, MMT style, to uh, uh, fund a Green New Deal, we don't produce that much in the way of solar panels. Um, we couldn't build high-speed rail. We'd have to import that. Uh, so you know, it wouldn't even stimulate that much in the way of employment in this country. It would probably stimulate employment in China and, and uh, Germany. Uh, right, but we wouldn't right. do so much here. But they don't really talk about that. Right. Yeah, th- th- I just want to make. I think wh- one of the most striking things about this doctrine is that they really separate the relation of money and the productive sector uh, in a to a very extreme degree. You now, in most of the time, you think of money as a way of, of, of facilitating, facilitating private exchange. Uh, it's all about you know, goods and services, uh, labor, um, mm-hmm. buying and selling things, um, and that's what money is all about. Um, it's, you know, this in it's the great, uh, the great universal equivalent in Marxian doctrine, uh, but uh, no, to them it's just something that the government creates. You know, like the, the the like God giving life
0: to Adam. Yeah, and I mean, you put it very clearly that division between sort of money and ignorance of actual production. To return a little bit to the case of emerging economies, I mean, it, it's I think it's pretty clear that the, the problems of money chasing not enough economic activity, as a sort of thought experiment and to try to make a case for how MMT might work, could one imagine under an authoritarian government, I guess, uh, with enough control over production in an emerging economy, which would be able to actually create enough economic activity and drive that investment towards uh, productive ends? Uh, you know, sort of a, a, a mid-century North, uh, excuse me, mid-century South Korea, for example. I don't know, would that be a situation which MMT might work?
2: Well, no. You know, South Korea did it with uh, exports, and uh, the government had a very, very heavy hand of planning. Um, so, uh, but you know, money well, that's what I am kind of uh, getting
0: at. I mean, would yeah. you, would, you'd need a very, a, a very firm-handed government which controlled a, a huge swathes of the economy to be able to make all that printed money actually get to work rather than
2: yeah absolutely and but you know they're, they're not really interested in altering the productive sector very much they never talk about that mm-hmm. sort of thing um they're not and they certainly don't talk about class uh, class relations like you know zero percent interest rates the uh, um the investing class would not take that lying down um so sometimes uh under the guise of these moderate-sounding proposals, they're actually proposing something that would require immense political mobilization uh, to make happen. Uh, you know, right. Keynes talked about the euthanasia of the rentier, uh, and the rentiers uh, would fight back. You know, they have ar- armies; they don't like uh, money being taken away from them.
1: That br- that that brings me to sort of a central thing I've always found with uh, sort of MMT types—they're very kind of strangely apolitical. It's kind of like a technocratic doctrine that promises all the benefits for redistributed policy with none of the trade-offs, none of the confrontations and mobilizations that you would need to put the investor class in its place.
2: Oh, that's absolutely true. I mean, there's nothing about class uh, that you can see anywhere in their their literature. And I read a lot of it. Like That's one of the reasons it took me, I, I first started talking to uh, Bass Carson Sankara about writing this piece on MMT, oh, I don't know, two years ago or more, and I put it off um, because I didn't want to have to read all their literature. I'd read enough of it to know that it was really repetitive and boring and, and not very enlightening, uh, and so I, I, I finally decided, okay, this thing is out of control. Everybody's talking about it. I must, um, I must uh, launch my salvo, but uh, uh, it was uh, uh, the, 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 um, the absolute... Indifference to class is very, very striking, uh, and you know that comes out in the job guarantee as well. I mean, it comes out in both ends of the class spectrum: um, the, uh, the 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 lower end of the working class, and also uh, the uh, the the upper classes that would not take kindly to um, having their uh, their wealth inflated away.
1: Uh, so that that uh, we're going to come back to the jobs guarantee in a second. But uh, one of the other weak points which you identify in terms of MIT is taxation policy, and you sort of make the argument in the article that us uh, we as socialists in uh, our limited capacity in today's world need to focus on taxation as it entires some sort of a class based uh, confrontation or limiting the power of the ruling class and some forth. So how does taxation play in a sort of socialist fiscal strategy?
2: Well, I, I think, you know, in this um, grim time we live in, uh, where uh, um, <laughs> in the US, I, you know, socialism has uh, has, has a, 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 a salience and a prestige that it hasn't had in a long time. But this is unusual in the world. And it's very unusual for the US to be <laughs> leading the way in this area. Uh, but um, in any case, you know, that uh, the idea that uh, to me, taxation is a, is a kind of socialization of resources. Uh, we're taking money away from uh, upper-income people, but you know, I, I think we need to be honest that, uh, and this this point got edited out of my article from, from Jacobin, but if we want anything like uh, a developed welfare state in the United States, everyone is going to be, have to be taxed more uh people at the 50th percentile people at the 70th percentile um uh, you know and certainly people you know 90 and above absolutely um but you know when you start taxing people at the very very high end um they're going to stop paying each other so much um so you know, how much of that money would evaporate when you try to uh uh seize it is is a question but you can certainly get some of it uh there there are a couple of uh academic papers that uh, show that uh the the ideal top tax rate is somewhere around 70% that's the that maximizes the, the revenue um, and and uh, uh, um, uh, sort of gets on top of all the avoidance strategies that rich people might have. But um, you know, that since they don't really think about uh, the relation of, of money and uh, um, to uh, the world of production uh, and uh, all the social relations around the world of production... Uh, their 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 view of taxation is, is extremely technocratic. It's just a way of removing liquidity from the economy if things get a little too hot. Um, but to me, taking money away from uh, a, a private consumption, the sphere of private consumption, and uh, uh, putting that towards public use, um, you know that that's a kind of fiscal politics, uh, with, uh, socialist intent. Uh, so for example, the example I give, uh, in examples I give in the article is fewer Lamborghinis and more bullet trains, you know, fewer Hamptons beach houses and more public housing. Um, so we want to take money away from rich people so that the money they spend, uh, can't be, um, you know, the, the, doesn't hog up the resources that could be used for uh, more public spirited pursuits. Uh, but since they only view taxation is very shallow uh, way. Um, Ray has said, uh, and others have said as well that like taxing rich people, we don't want to tax them uh, to, uh, to, to use their uh, revenue, re- use that revenue for any kind of good public spending. In other words, uh, you can't say uh, tax the rich to feed hungry kids and save the planet. No, that's bad. Uh, They talk about just taking their money away because they're too rich, Um, which, I don't know, it seems to me much better politics to say, tax the rich and uh, spend the money on saving the earth and feeding poor kids than it does to say, let's just take their money and burn it.
0: Yeah. And that's that's a good line about the bullet trains. And I think it's a certain irony that a lot of, I guess, left liberal discourse, which is more focused on justice then on where you, what kind of society you actually want to build, also uses taxes in a way which is a bit of a throwaway. Well, it'll just harmonize things or it'll make society fairer rather than actually thinking what you want to do with it. And I guess MMT seems like, well, look, you've got all this unlimited cash that you could spend, but it also fails to ask what do you actually want to spend it on and what kind of production do you want? Um and- yeah
2: i quote I quote Jen, uh, John Robinson a couple of places in there uh, where she says you know she's criticizing uh what the vulgarizations of Keynes, but even Keynes himself to some degree, you know, who famously said, uh, he'd rather people just dig up holes, dig holes and fill them back up again, um, as a way of creating jobs than just, uh, let unemployment stay high. Um, and you know, I can understand where he's coming from, but on the other hand, uh, there, there really needs to be some thought about what we're spending money on. Uh, a lot of you know, liberal discourse just thinks of, uh, uh you know, Jack up the deficit, stimulate the economy, and uh, don't really think about the structure of that economy or what is being uh, produced, what is being consumed, um, how sustainable is it over the long term. they're not 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 so much interest in that. And MMT uh, also suffers from that. There's really not much interest in uh, reshaping. Um, uh, the world of production, or certainly not the world of social relations—the you know, ownership and control, and uh, boss and worker, and all those sorts of
0: things—not not much interest in those things at all. Right, and that very, comes very clear. Excuse me, that comes through very clearly in your critique. One other really hot idea in the world of political economy, of course, is UBI. And you know, I one thing which is associated with MMT, which is a jobs guarantee, which you've already mentioned, seems to be potentially a little bit more appealing than uh, than a UBI, than universal basic income. But like with UBI, where you can have a bad UBI, which is just an excuse to cut welfare and public services and keep people on a pittance. And uh, you can also have a more progressive version of UBI. I'm personally skeptical, but one can imagine such a thing. Uh, likewise, with the jobs guarantee, I think we probably also have to get into the nitty gritty and actually examine what does this jobs guarantee look like, and what are you actually producing? Are you just having people dig holes? So maybe you could talk us through a little bit about how whether you're sympathetic at all to a jobs guarantee and, and under what form.
2: Uh, I, I go back and forth in this. Uh, and I can't really make up my mind. Also, I feel that somewhat that way about UBI. I mean, there are things I find appealing about a UBI. On the other hand, I think there are real political limitations to the popularity of paying healthy people to do nothing. Um, I think for uh, people who have to, you know, are are working, um, there's going to be a lot of resentment of paying people to do nothing. Uh, On the other hand, um, work sucks, and I can understand the appeal of wanting to get away from it. So, you know, I have have mixed feelings about that. Um, A job guarantee uh, avoids that problem of paying people, you know, the the, the political problem of paying people to do nothing. Uh, But uh, in the proposals that the MMT people have come up with, what they want uh, the job guarantee to do is not all that inspiring necessarily. Uh, they make, and Polina Cherneva, who's written several papers on this, is their their leading um, job guarantee person. Uh, and in her paper, she argues uh, that uh, the wage should be about $15 an hour, which is something like the 35th or 36th percentile of the American wage distribution. So it would not be a, a, a Strictly low wage uh, employment. It would also come with full uh, benefits, uh, health and and, uh, and uh, sick benefits, and all kinds of things like that. Um, and by their estimate, you know, it would maybe be about two percent of GDP. I don't you know. I don't know how if that's exact, but it would not be uh, extremely too expensive to uh, to. To do a, a job guarantee of that sort. But they say, well, she and her colleagues say very explicitly that do not want to compete with the private sector. Why, I don't know, but they say they do not want to compete with the private sector. And they also shy away from any kind of the ambitious uh, um, uh, New Deal-style proposals, of infrastructure spending in particular. Um, so, you know, they, all the, the, the WPA in the 1930s produced uh, roads and dams and Post offices and schools, the U.S. is still living on the infrastructure that was created, you know, 80 years ago during during that that period. Uh, my friends uh, Dick Walker and Gray Breschen, who run this Living New Deal Project out of Berkeley, um, have been mapping uh, all these uh, uh, these WPA things uh, and other New Deal projects around the country, and we just they're most people had no idea, even till they started doing this, of just how extensive uh, that infrastructure building was. They don't want to do that. And in a period where American infrastructure is literally falling to pieces, uh, where bridges collapse all the time, uh, you know, just basic stuff like that, but also where we want to think about creating a whole new green infrastructure uh, to, to uh, do what we can to uh, uh, stave off uh, the, the horrors of climate change. There's not much uh, they have to say about that. so they um, uh, they're interested in kinds of things like planting trees uh, and uh, cleaning up uh, trash in, in yards and you know it's a lot of what some people might think of as make work and you know, these are not you pointless. Um. Tasks, but
0: uh, and if it's it's temporary, you can be it can be justified, right?
2: Yeah, but the other thing is, you know, they also talk about care work, and uh, I I completely agree with this this part of the analysis that care work is mostly done by women, uh, and uh, because of that, it is uh, disparaged, uh, and it is. you know, that, that uh, the big infrastructure projects usually done by male labor and that uh, has more prestige. Uh, and I can understand this critique completely and I'm sympathetic to it. But on the other hand, there's no reason that uh, care work couldn't be revalued. It doesn't have to be paid poorly and treated uh, uh, with as almost as an afterthought. And there's no reason that women couldn't do this kind of infrastructure work either. So the idea that this, uh, you know, Building things as purely gendered male seems to be uh, just holding over something uh, that's very obsolete from the past. But you know, these are urgently needed tasks. Uh and uh the 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 having a, a transient workforce, uh who uh, uh people who are unemployed or having trouble getting jobs otherwise, um, doing this kind of labor um just doesn't seem like you're giving it a whole lot of social value. Uh it seems like um you know, some some friends of mine think of uh, this as, as workfare schemes. And there there are aspects of workfare about it, uh that uh, we really need to um, develop a, a clean infrastructure we need to have climate uh, uh, climate mitigation stuff you know building seawalls all kinds of things to prevent a, uh, the the uh, inundation of our coastline uh, that's uh, very serious stuff uh, but they're not really interested in doing that but you know these things would could uh, in theory create pretty high-wage jobs, could generate whole new uh, industries and uh, save the planet at the same time. Um, but uh, that's not what your job guarantee is about. For them, it's just uh, part of um, a business cycle management scheme.
0: Right, absolutely. I think, and I, I think we can be sympathetic to a jobs guarantee and try to think through what a good one might look like. As you say, there's a lot of useful things to be done in the economy which currently aren't remunerated uh, and which should be done, in fact.
2: <laughs> and it means stepping on the private sector. You know, that to right. do these things right, we need to step on the private sector's free- freedom of investment, which is oh, – uh, f- for the bourgeoisie, that's a big deal. Uh, and so it requires serious political mobilization to get any of these sorts of things done. The other strange um, political um, weirdness about MMT and the job guarantee is that anything that eliminated the sting of unemployment would be viewed by the employing class as a threat. Uh, if the boss can't hold the threat of unemployment over the working class, then the um, Bad bad attitudes will develop. Labor discipline will will soften. Uh, And they seem not to care very much uh, about the implications of that, about the political implications of that. Uh, And also, having a a job guarantee at a $15 an hour wage, which, as I said, was something around the 35th or 36th percentile of the American wage distribution, that would drive up uh, the uh, private sector wages by a fairly large amount, which would be a good thing. I'm all for it. But I don't think it, they really fully understand how disruptive that might be uh, to the whole uh, structure of the labor market, whole structure of the class structure of the American economy, which def- depends heavily on really low wage uh, and uh, transient and desperate labor. Um, so th- they're, they're uh, proposing something that would require a great uh, challenge uh, to bourgeois power. At the same time, they seem not to be Contemplating on how to how to mobilize to get there,
0: mm-hmm. right? So you end up mistrusting its proponents, and therefore mistrusting their prescriptions as a consequence. I agree that it looks like you would need to take be taken a lot more seriously in terms of uh, actually breaking eggs. But their whole their whole doctrine seems to be: we don't need to break any eggs; we can just do what we want. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a way which is the easy way out, um, but they also don't seem to have thought
2: about it very much.
0: Yeah. No, that that's that's concerning. And I think we'll have to take this discussion uh, forward in, in other podcasts and so on. Just to finish up, we do need to talk about fiscal responsibility, I guess. Uh, I mean, would you call yourself a fiscally responsible socialist? Uh, what does that mean? We, we, we actually just had James Medway on recently a couple of weeks ago, and he was pushing this line as well. And of course... In, in that regard, you know, MMT does have something going for it, which is that it's not a, a deficit hawk. So, you know, where, where, where do you position yourself?
2: Um, well, I said on Twitter a, a while back uh, that I consider myself a sound money socialist, which I meant half as a joke. Uh, but the MMT people had great fun with this. Uh, but what I meant by that was that you really have to think about how you're going to pay for things over the long term. You can't just like, conjure money out of the air and think you're going to uh, make the world better. Uh, you have to think about uh, how you're going to reorganize production uh, and how you're going to uh, channel resources into making that better world. Uh, and that means figuring out how you're going to pay for it. It means expropriating, essentially, uh, the resources that are now uh, put to malign use uh, in the purely private sector and putting them to benign use in the public. Uh, and I, this idea, you know, and certainly not Saying you know, I need to balance the budget all the time and like you know, tighten belts, and I don't want to sound like Wolfgang Schäuble, <laughs> but um, you know, over the long term, I think you really do have to pay for things, and uh, MMT is seems to avoid uh, thinking about that. Um, so that's what I mean by by calling myself a, a sound money socialist. I think you really need to uh, be serious about how you're going to pay for stuff, and not just uh, w- dismiss the, the the question with a hand wave. Right,
0: and indeed. Uh, probably would be good to establish exactly what the limits of of an MMT style approach would be. Uh, and I think you're very clear about this, that it- that rather that they are unclear uh your interlocutors are unclear on what exactly the limits of printing money actually is do you want to print a little bit of money in certain determinate circumstances or do you want to do it always and i guess you know as uh, if, we th- if we're thinking seriously about socialist strategy the question then would be you know how do you position yourself exactly between sort of deficit hawks um We'd also just think you can just tax the rich without confrontation or that you can print money without confrontation uh, and actually being serious about what that confrontation would involve and where you want to go with it
2: yeah and i, th- I think the mmt um is is avoiding all those hard questions uh and all those uh, political challenges that would be uh necessary to get from here to a better place
0: all right excellent uh i think we'll have to call you up again maybe at some time if you're up for that to actually discuss some more of these hard questions. Uh, But for now, we'll uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much, Doug. Give me a call anytime. Thank you. All right, that's it for this program. We're back in two weeks with more. Just one final announcement. Bunga is off to California next month to record a series of programs on the Californian ideology, wellness, mindfulness, high-tech Silicon Valley shit. That's courtesy of the University of California, Irvine's research group, States of Wellness, which is funded by the School of Humanities there. We're very excited about that. We'll have a hell of a lot of content coming out unpicking various aspects of the Californian ideology. So all that to look forward to. Catch you later. Bye-bye.